Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 187 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Rediscovered Powers, an interview with Jennifer Hoffman. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, I absolutely love this story. It is really powerful. And there is a really cool discovery of powers during her childhood that were abandoned because she had been gaslit by school nurses, by doctors, and other entities. And she moved away from using that power until she came to the end of her Lyme disease journey and she was using it again. And Rich, we had really high expectations for Jennifer. She's a board member at Generation Lime, a program manager for Project Lime, and she exceeded our expectations. If you're somebody looking for a story of hope and inspiration, then this podcast episode is for you. Jennifer kept hitting wall after wall after wall, and she kept fighting back and fighting back, and she finally reached remission. And Matt, in addition to being an inspirational story, this is a story about identity and the importance of having a positive identity in order to be able to heal from Lyme. Hey, everyone. The purpose of our podcast is to learn from one another. And we learned a lesson from Jennifer after launching this podcast that was so important that we decided to change the intro and share this lesson with all of you. I made the mistake of saying that Jennifer was in remission, but Jennifer taught us that healing is not black and white, and we can live a high quality of life even if we haven't reached remission. In Jennifer's words, life doesn't have to be remission or bust. Jennifer's story is about finding a path to a life more livable, functional, and enjoyable with Lyme disease. So without further ado, Rediscovered Powers with... Jennifer Hoffman. Hey, Jen, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. We're really excited to have you. And I just want you to know, and I want our listeners to know that Matt and I have been excited about interviewing you because among many other things that we've learned from you, and we'll talk about that more towards the end of the podcast, we learned that we can be fans of opera. Matt and I, um, we went to uh, one of the Generation Lime events and uh, we were kind of like concerned about whether or not the event was something we were going to enjoy because part of it was going to include an opera singer. And much to our shock, you were by far the most gifted and talented uh, performer on that event. And uh, we, uh, we, we had a learning experience there. So Jen, thank you very much for sharing your beautiful talent with uh, that event and now sharing uh, your story with our folks. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. That means that means the world to me. And and thank you. <laughs> so Jen, why don't you share with our um, our folks first where you live and uh, where you grew up? I grew up in New Rochelle, New York. I primarily live in New York City, and I am currently back in New Rochelle, New York, with my parents for the time. All right, and, so and my uh, grandma. <laughs> We have uh, we have three New Yorkers on the uh, podcast, and we generally give a um, a trigger warning because we butcher the English language, at least here on Long Island. So, because you're not a Long Islander, we won't give that trigger warning today. And so, talk to us about what it was like growing up in New Rochelle and uh, what your childhood experience was like. Uh, I was I was a very active child. I was it was I really enjoyed living close to the city. New Rochelle is a small city, like a essentially a commuter suburb slash city of New York City. So I went into the city a lot, but you also get the benefit of being in some more country-ish spaces, if you consider that a benefit, if you're listening to this as a Lyme disease concerned individual. But um, I was very active in school and extracurriculars and sports and the arts. Um, but I definitely experienced health problems from a young age that progressed over time and, uh, they, but they really didn't have any answers. So it was, it was sort of a, a complex, very busy 
active, somewhat confusing growing up experience, but I was always pushing forward and moving around. I was extremely active in actually visual art and sports. I played soccer and all, all manner of, uh, of activities kind of looking for the, the thing that I, that I really loved. I kind of loved visual art, which I still do, but eventually I got into, into music and performing and that, that really stuck. So talk to us about your, um, your aptitude as a visual artist first and where you thought that was going to take you and how that ultimately led you to the career that you did develop. Well, I just always, um, as a kid, I always drew, I painted, I would have books of the Renaissance masters as they were called and, and such and all kinds of, um, and, and more artists beyond that. And what I would try to do as a small child was copy their work. And I would, I would doodle in class and get in trouble all the time. <laughs> but it was actually when I was paying the most attention, but I didn't know, I mean, back I didn't know back then that that was actually how my brain works. I have this thing called synesthesia, which is essentially your, your senses um, kind of overlapping and working together and the wires sort of being crossed. So some people with synesthesia can, for example, interpret sounds as um, visuals and vice versa. And all, there's all types. We can talk about that for an entire podcast, but that's not what we're here for. So I would do that a lot. And um and so when I got into high school, there was this new program for the arts and I joined uh, the art program so I could get a double diploma in visual art and um, you know, regular high school New York Regents diploma. And it turned, but simultaneously I was, I was in a band in school. I always loved singing. I pl had been playing the piano since I was nine. And um, my friend had uh, brought me to the musical audition for the school play where I very shyly sang happy birthday for my audition. And the, the director encouraged me to actually take it seriously and said I had some aptitude and perhaps take voice lessons. And so I did. That teacher happened to be an opera singer. So when she asked me why, why I was there, I said, I want to sing with my band. And she was like, uh, okay. But then she started to teach me classical music. I had gone to um, a uh, the opera as part of a school trip. I fell in love, and then during the final years of my art classes, um, we had a very a really wonderful class where we could explore everything, and so we could really combine all of our interests and and a kind of just to become kind of full artists and people we were you know as young people and so we were always listening to music in class and I would always sing I, I didn't really get in trouble for that but eventually when I was done and it was the senior year and I was considering um perhaps taking another art class the following year they were like will you please join the choir <laughs> this isn't really where you you need to go now and um and so when it became time to apply to college, I had also, which I didn't mention, I was also always extremely interested in social studies and civics, that type of work. And I always wanted to, I had a childhood dream of being a, a musician and a lawyer. 
<laughs> simultaneously. And so I, and uh, I always wanted to do something that felt like it was for me and for other people. And music is for other people, but it really felt, I was so passionate about it that it really felt like it was for me. And I felt that pursuing this other avenue could help other people. And it was something that I was really fascinated by and politics and government and stuff like that. So I applied to school with a strong political science program. And it happened that they also offered a scholarship for the arts. And I ended up receiving that, luckily, and going to a school where I could double major in music and political science. So Jen, it sounds to me like you had a really enriching experience certainly during your high school years where you had this diversity of opportunity available to you so that you could develop all of these talents that you had been given by God and that you could pursue these dreams that you were seeking to pursue. Yes, ab so, I would say absolutely true. So let's talk about what they taught you about ticks and tick diseases during that window of your life. You're living in a suburban community where clearly uh, there are ticks and there is Lyme disease and uh, young Jennifer starts to show the signs of, of illness very early on in her life. So um, first of all, did you receive any information about ticks and tick diseases during the course of your childhood, either at this very enriching environment that you had in school or from your parents who clearly um, had the resources to add to the enrichment that you were receiving both um, musically, artistically, and, uh, and socially? This is one of the things among many that looking back, I find completely wild is that I did know about Lyme disease. I thought, I thought I knew about Lyme disease. I thought I knew about ticks. I was made aware that it existed. I was made aware that I should be mindful of the grass and should dress a certain way when I was outside. Of course, I didn't always do that. <laughs> But, and it wasn't something that I had a, New Rochelle is really an, a lovely place because it's extremely diverse in terms of opportunities, the socioeconomic backgrounds of the people that are here and the types of involvement that you can have in, in life in general. But of course, I would go in my yard and sit on the grass and play in the trees, or, but you don't even need to do that in order to be exposed to ticks, which I now know. And I would also go to camp and at those places, of course, you can be exposed to ticks. But what I knew to expect was something called a bullseye. And in my mind, and according to pictures that I had seen, that was like a red and white target, which I never saw. So and Jennifer, let's, but let's pause there for a second. Where were you receiving this awareness, right? I mean, let's, and we can break parents. down awareness from mastery in a moment, but- sure. uh, I'm sorry, so where, where did you receive this awareness information and how did you, if at all, apply this awareness that you received? I, I got that awareness from my parents. Certainly. So did you take health classes or uh, any of those types of classes in school and were you provided any information about um, tick diseases that would allow you to have actionable steps that would have allowed you to protect your health? I don't recall. We did take health class. I don't recall any Lyme disease prevention discussion in those classes. Now, you received general awareness from your parents. 
were there any actionable steps that you were able to take that would have prevented you from getting Lyme disease? Possibly, but sort of functionally, no, without making serious changes to the choices, the places I lived and where I went and um, the activities that I chose in, in life, for example, playing soccer and going and I spent a lot of time in upstate New York and Maine and Connecticut and even in Westchester. And as a child, my legs were covered in bites multiple times over multiple years. It wasn't a one-time thing. And so to answer your question, I would have had to make many changes. And it's such a wild hypothetical for me to be able to answer um, that I can't imagine. It's, it's, it feels so inevitable, basically. Well, but we here at Tech Bootcamp don't believe it's inevitable. We believe with the proper education and the proper grooming techniques, you can enjoy the outdoors and you can enjoy the kinds of things that you enjoyed both as an athlete and somebody who was enjoying nature and not get sick. The question is whether or not we are converting our awareness to a set of actionable steps that will allow us to be safe. We're going to talk more about that, Jen, because when we get to the transformation portion of this podcast, uh, we know that you are teaching this issue and you and I are going to have a longer conversation about that then. But let's talk about how your symptoms began to develop and how it was affecting you during your childhood. Can I just expand on the inevitability portion though? Okay. What I, what I meant by inevitable was as long as ticks were out there, I was going to get bitten if without major changes. The thing that, and that's what I find inevitable. And those were, those would have to be broader changes like made by things beyond my, my control as a child. However, what I also, what I agree is not inevitable would have been changes according to how I was treated by doctors, et cetera, and what was looked out for stuff like so that. So the little girl, Jennifer, who was growing up in New Rochelle, who had the information and the education and the social support she had in a tick endemic community was going to get sick, right? Seemingly. I know quite a few people in my area who did. So let's, let's talk about how your sickness began to present um, to young Jennifer. Okay, well... I started getting migraines. I think that's probably the first um, real presentation of something that seemed completely abnormal at the time at seven years old or so. And they never stopped, <laughs> really. Um, and from there, I started to develop, I felt that in elementary school, I went from feeling relatively healthy all the time to being feeling very sick from day to day. And it was a real fluctuating experience. And so I would often find myself at the nurse, but I was treated like a, like a hypochondriac who just wanted to get out of class, which didn't really match up with my uh, levels of involvement in school. When I was always, you know, eagerly raising my hand. I was kind of that kid. Um, but I ended up at the nurse a lot. Progressively, I would I developed um, allergies 
and asthma, and which really got in the way of my running, which I was really a fan of. And, um, and then I developed severe gastrointestinal issues and um, food sensitivities. And from there, I developed um, interstitial cystitis. But really, as a kid, it was kind of like a, a switch turned either on, on and off. And my personality certainly changed. I've discussed this with with a parent and because I can kind of pinpoint um, a time when I think it really got bad around the, probably when I was 12. Um, and I, because I had pockets of times when I really wasn't aware of my surroundings and I would get dizzy and I, and I really wasn't present. And that would severely contrast with other days or weeks when I was fine. And I was completely different and it was really impossible to, to pinpoint. Nobody went, uh, nobody pursued um, a course to of discovery to, to try to find out whether or not there was something really wrong with me. It was always treat the symptom of what's going on and why is Jennifer acting strange? <laughs> So let's talk about that, Jen. Um, I, I want to talk about the doctors your parents took you to separately from your effort as a child to get medical assistance yourself. So you're a student in school, you're exhibiting what you now know to be classic Lyme disease symptoms, and you go to the school nurse and the school nurse gaslights you. So talk to us about what that experience is like as a young child seeking help from an adult who is a medical professional and being gaslit by that profession? Oh gosh, it's, um, I think, as I've said, I've never really told my story in this format. And as an adult, I've experienced that so many times and it's hard enough to talk about that, but looking back and diving back into those memories is such a viscerally unpleasant <laughs> experience because it was, as an adult, it seems, asinine that that would happen but it really did and it was just and as a kid you don't know how ridiculous it is when someone's doing that you th things just kind of are as they are presented to you and even then I was I was pretty strong in my conviction that I something was wrong with me and of course I would occasionally have a voice in my head like am I you know am I making any of this up no because I'm missing something I want to be doing, or I, I, I liked the thing we were just talking about. This is boring and sucks, and I'm not enjoying this conversation with the nurse. I don't want to be here. Um, I, I don't want to have to miss this sports, whatever it is. I don't want to be this person who's, who's treated or thought about this way, basically. Um, yeah, it was, it was, I really didn't like that. So, but Jen, there's two things that strike me about that portion of the story that you shared with us. The first is if the nurse was properly trained in uh, recognizing Lyme disease symptoms, there would have been another layer of protection available to you that may have put you in a position where you received an early diagnosis and you wouldn't be dealing with what you're dealing with now. But the, 100%. The, there's a second thing that strikes me, which of course, is you talked about the inevitability of getting Lyme disease, right? And part of the reason why young Jennifer 
was in a position where it was inevitable that she was going to get Lyme disease when living in this tick endemic community is because the medical professionals that you are seeking out, A, were not well trained in, in understanding the symptoms of Lyme disease, but even more importantly, they weren't listening to one of the good geeky kids who didn't want to go to the nurse's office, who wasn't looking to have um, you know, time away from school. But even though you were the good kid who didn't want to be in the nurse's office, she was treating you like you were, you know, mentally ill, or you were looking for attention, or you were doing something other than looking for medical assistance from a medical professional who gaslit you. So give me your reaction to those two thoughts. I mean, I think this is all true. And I think the idea of Again, when I talked about inevitability, it's it specifically to answer your question about things that I could have changed. Because as a kid, I'm looking back, I think I really think I did everything I could have done. And I it agree. was it was the surrounding, you know, the system surrounding me and the people who had been trained as they were and all of that, that things just happened as they did because of the way things were at the time, the level of awareness at the time, the information available and, and all of that. And that was, that was kind of set. And um, it, it would have been great to have some changes in there, but, <laughs> but they just were not available then. Um, and, uh, and now when, when we talk about like um, the idea of the geeky kid or the good kid coming in, I don't think there are bad kids and you know I don't think that there are any kids who should be treated like oh you are the one who's got a problem I think I don't know I don't know if it's this condition or this experience or or any other experience but I think there's especially adults looking at children that there's always a reason a kid is acting a certain way and it's the adult's responsibility to investigate that without judging the child and without writing the child off as being a certain type of person or child and I feel that happens too much and it keeps people down and as a like a privileged person I'm I actually benefited from from not having that happen to me too much and yet it happened to me enough and it's just uh it's this is just one example of that kind of thing happening. It's ridiculous. But Jennifer, that's the point, right? I mean, yeah. you are a privileged person. You were the geeky kid. You were the accomplished kid. And it happened to you. So if it was right. going to happen to you, it's certainly going to happen to everyone else, which yep. shows the failure of the system. And not only from a, you know, from a failure to properly train staff to be aware of the symptoms of, of Lyme disease, but also, of course, training the staff to be listening and not gaslighting the people who are coming to them. So let's fast forward and go to talk about the doctors your parents took you to, because I'm sure the nurse is not the only one that your parents had you interact with when you were showing all these symptoms. Yes. Yes. It was, uh, I definitely learned to take control of my own, my own journey, but of course that's fast forwarding a little too much for this portion of the conversation, but they took me to, they, they've had a journey as well. They did not really listen to me either for a very long time. And that was a very difficult experience for many years. And, um, and the going, the journey from not listening to listening was not, that was, that was not a binary experience either. <laughs> they did, that was also a, 
a journey for them. <laughs> I just used that. Um, but uh, the people that I saw were very often, they, they were arranged. They were usually specialists. I saw pediatricians and I've seen so many doctors because it was, I would see, you know, five people because it was per, per issue. It was kind of like people would send me to their colleagues. I would get bounced around enough starting from so young and um, who never really had answers. It, when it was always very localized. I would see people for my allergies because, and it was always just to get the, la the latest thing under control so that I could be okay and move on and, and push forward, et cetera. And so it was, I would see specialists, but not someone who ever looked at the whole picture which was a huge, obviously the missing element. And, um, you know, on top of not knowing people seeing, not seeing someone who knew what Lyme disease was. But um, I, I also saw people who, this is a great example, who really didn't know what they were doing. And I had a tick bite on my head that got burned off with acid by a doctor who really don't, I don't even know how that person was a doctor who thought it was just a different skin condition that should have been, that, that you treat by burning with acid. I don't know if he came from the middle ages to, to, through a time machine or something, but I saw another doc, cause I had multiple bites and um, I saw another doctor after that. And she was like, what the? So every time I get a haircut, they're like, oh, you have a little bald spot. And I'm like, I, I know. <laughs> there's a story there <laughs> but I, so I saw all kinds of all kinds of doctors um growing up and it was never really there were some that I liked there were some that I did not well how are your experiences with your doctors during your childhood different than the experience you had with the school nurse who gaslit you similar Ultimately, they were similar. Um, I eventually, especially as I got older and I'd had my symptoms for a long enough amount of time and I, I was able to name them. I had names for them. Some of them, I would start to, I started to like many Lyme patients and certainly chronic Lyme patients, I started to accumulate diagnoses. And once I did, I could see doctors who specialized in those things and those would be taken more seriously and treated. But then I would start accumulating tr uh, treatments for those things, started accumulating a regimen of medications. Of course, my health was not actually better. Certain things were kind of being dealt with, you know, until they weren't because I would keep getting chronic localized infections. And I was constantly suspicious of the entire situation because I was, I was just growing this this suspicion that like, there's no way that I just have separate problems in one body and it's becoming, it's 10 separate problems, 20 separate problems now, Third, you know, as I'm becoming, as I'm an adolescent, becoming a young adult, et cetera, I thought, you know, Sherlock Holmes would not accept this. <laughs> this is not, this does not make sense. The body is supposed to work together and I'm just constantly learning that, well, this organ doesn't work and that's its own thing. The system doesn't work, but that has nothing to do with, with the other organ that isn't working properly. And, um, and so even as a kid, I was growing this, there was always this voice in the back of my mind that my health was not right. And that even when I was told that I was fine now, and I would tell people I'm fine now, that I really was not. 
So Jennifer, while you were collecting these diagnoses, uh, you were being bitten by ticks, it seems like many times during your childhood. So how many different times do you recall having discovered a tick biting you? I don't recall um, discovering it while it was happening. My legs were covered in rashes that did not, that I thought were spider bites. Many, often, many times um, I, it, they appeared to have something in them which I now, I know what that was, but I did not, um, I did not know that they could, that those rashes could possibly be tick bite rashes because I was looking for, I had my eye out, you know, but I was looking for something that would not present that way on me. My, when I have a, a red rash, for example, it doesn't show up as bright red. It's rashes only really show up on me when they're purple <laughs> and and my rashes were also really uniform. They didn't, at, when I was growing up, they were not in the sort of bullseye pattern. And now I know that those are of course tick bite rashes. I'm, I'm, now I get to be knowledgeable at that, but at the time I had no idea. So Jen, give me your thoughts about the bullseye rash and the way that the bullseye rash seems to be the symptom that we use to train people to be aware of Lyme disease. Do you think that's good? Or do you think that's bad that we're using the bullseye rash as a symptom that we train people to look for? I think it's bad. <laughs> and I, I know you knew that I was going to say that. <laughs> and thank you for asking me. I think it's extremely bad. And I think it's it's kind of infuriatingly bad. I think it should be a small part of the diagnostic process as, and not, okay. <laughs> and not, um, not an indicator that you need a test either. You, you see a bullseye rash, you have Lyme disease. That's it. You don't need a test. You might want to get a test to find out what co-infections you may have, but you have Lyme disease. That's it. That's point number one, I guess. Point number two is you don't always get a rash, period. You need to know that. Point number three is bold, the tick bite rash is not necessarily going to look like a bullseye. So you need to become educated in the variety of rashes that might manifest on, a, on anyone's skin. Now, the next point, which for me, I'd like to have be point number one, is that not all skin types look the same when they get bitten by ticks. And so it's really infuriating that we're all that even the medical community. So forget the patient population, we're just doing their best. But the medical community is taught that to look for like, white, red, white, red, red, white, red, white, and on skin when people's not everyone has white skin. And not everyone and all people have all kinds of skin tones, all types of skin textures, all types of other things that might affect how their skin reacts. And that doesn't mean that they can't get Lyme disease. <laughs> We're missing so many people because so Jen, of this one uh, item. I'm going to ask you to pause for on, on that point. Look, you're, you're a political scientist and you're someone who has been dealing with Lyme disease. So now put on your political scientist hat mm -hmm. and let's talk about how we use public awareness campaigns, health campaigns, to make people aware? And how would you do it differently as it relates to giving people, people information about skin rashes so that they are aware of bullseye rash, but it is not something they're necessarily looking for when determining whether or not they are symptomatic for Lyme disease? 
That's kind of a big question and something that I have, I, I am actively working on and have, have worked on. I mean, there are, I think the small scale work is valid. People have written lots of articles about this. There's Brown Skin Matters that, that posts about this and with images, which I think is so important online. Minority Nurse has written about this. There's articles in the New England Journal of Medicine about this. And it's really great when patients of all backgrounds write about it too and just spread the word. And as far as like more organizational change, I think we need to demand that medical, that teaching materials up, get updated. And some of that is going to include providing the materials to use. So use these pictures, use the, like, here they are. Here's the, the five, six different types of rashes we know. And also at the top of the page, not everyone gets a rash. Here are the studies to prove it. Um, there are lots of, there, I'm, I'm leaving things out additionally, but there's a lot of ways I think to, to go about it and just spreading that information and, and also to indicate that, that because the testing is flawed anyway, not because not everyone gets a rash, you might miss that too. So to be extremely aware of the signs and symptoms that have nothing to do with rashes. All right, so now I want to talk to you about your childhood experience and your parents interacting with you when you were exhibiting all these symptoms. Now, I'm a dad, I have four children. I think I'm a pretty good dad, but there have been times when my children and I have had some disagreements about, you know, about different events in their lives, right? So um, you said that initially your parents were not essentially listening to you, but they were taking you to many, many doctors. And many of these doctors are t telling them either there was nothing wrong with you or what was wrong with you was diagnosed as now what we're defining your collection of symptoms. What do you think your parents should have done differently when they were receiving the information they were getting from the medical community that they were bringing you to, to receive a diagnosis? Oh, that's so hard. For, that's so hard. I'm sure I'm not a parent and I know I'm sure that's so hard for any parent because that parents, you know, people try their best. I, I know that much. <laughs> um, and I, and I know they, they did their best. And uh, especially I think now, we're increasing our population of people specifically relating to Lyme disease who know not to listen to the uh, more traditionally accepted wisdom. I don't even wanna say wisdom, information provided in textbooks and things like that. Um, so that's very important. And I think that they just grew up taught to accept, to, um, accept the information provided by experts and not so much listening to what a child might say because other generations, you know, you might hear a child being angsty or complaining and write it off as a child being angsty and complaining. When now I think that the, the sort of culture that we're in and the public lexicon are changing and we're thinking more about mental health and their ties to physical health and how children's behavior are more signs of something as opposed to just weird you know and and i think at the time um if they had been more skeptical of the of the word of the experts that might have helped but they didn't even know 
what else was out there to their to their credit it's not you know if they had known oh this there's this lyme disease possibility that no one's considering i'm sure they would have pressed on so just from the standpoint of what we could do differently now than we as a culture or as a society were we're, we're doing in the past and again I'm, I'm putting your your political science hat on now as well there are a number of different layers of protection that could have been offered to young Jennifer had there been a public health campaign that was effective, right? If Jennifer herself were taught enough about Lyme disease in her health classes and in school, perhaps Jennifer would have known more about Lyme disease. If Jennifer's parents were given information that would allow them to be skeptical about whether or not the information they were getting from doctors was accurate, they may have brought Jennifer to different doctors. If Jennifer's teachers and nurses at school were more informed and they were able to recognize symptoms, then Jennifer would have also had another opportunity. So there were a number of different layers of protection that if there were a proper public health campaign would have protected this young child from being as sick as you are now at 35 years old. 36 years old. Yep. <laughs> so now let's talk about, let's talk about um, how you were feeling at that time when you're going through this collection of symptoms during your childhood and this predates you going to college. Um, and um, how were you feeling when the doctors were telling you were okay? The nurses were telling you were okay. Your parents were telling you were okay. What was, what was the thought in your mind? Were you doubting whether or not you were sick in your own mind? Or were you able to distinguish what you were really feeling from what the doctors were telling you were feeling and your parents were telling you were feeling? I have not, cons I have not thought about this in a long time, probably just mentally blocked it for my own protection. But you know what? I actually think I knew that it was all crap. <laughs> and with, without even really fighting for it, though, I was angry. I was definitely angry, but I had, there were things I wanted to do that had nothing to do with claiming sickness as my only um, identity in life. And I, I think that helped me um, because I, I cared about other things and and it was just really a mix of like, we're all, humans are complicated. I, I think I, I was really angry. I had moments of, of being extremely frustrated. I didn't want to be at home. I, I didn't want to be around people who didn't believe me. I didn't want to be around people who, who continued to frustrate me or who didn't, you know, mind my, what my needs and stuff like that in the ways that I of course they did they did but it was more like um people when people help you in the way they think you need to be helped it's not necessarily the same way that you know you need to be helped and there was always there was always somewhat of a um a contrast in that and that was that was difficult especially growing up because I couldn't articulate what I needed um and uh and so I was, I was definitely angry. I was definitely frustrated, but I was also kind of focused on specific things and unspecific things as in, I just wanted to, to move forward. And I also spent a good amount of time and energy as I did even more growing up, uh, hiding it. So let's talk about that before I let Matt 
begin his uh, moment that he's anxiously awaiting to um, begin asking your questions. Let's talk about identity for a minute, right? Because one of the things that we've observed with many people who have had adolescent onset Lyme disease is they take on the identity of a sick person rather than the identity of someone who wants to be, for example, an opera singer. How did you prevent yourself from taking this identity of an ill person or a sick person rather than taking on this identity of someone who is going to pursue her career as a musician? I'd love to provide a really clear answer to be able to help someone else. Um, I'm not sure that I know. I think I just really loved something. And mostly it was that I really loved singing. I really loved music, but I also just had I think it was like an, an more than anything, an ambition for life that I wanted to do something, not just for myself, but for, for the world in some way that I wanted to um, be a part of, of things. And I wanted to express something and I wanted to learn more. And I just kept feeling like this is not it. I, I don't know, I had something and I, I was very curious and I, and I was also angry and in a way that kind of helped me not, not get too stuck. And I was, I was, I did feel completely stuck and, uh, but it made me angry enough not to stay there. So you think it was the anger that developed as a result of you being gaslit by nurses, doctors, parents, maybe other adults that drove you to an identity of, of, a musician and somebody who is going to contribute to the world rather than the identity of a sick person? Not exclusively anger, but I think I was, um, I think I was just extremely, I think I had a curiosity and I, like I, I felt very persistent and I could feel when people were not being persistent enough when they had a stopping point that I wouldn't accept, which as a kid is like, you can't really do much with that. But as you grow older, more, uh, you have more capability to, to keep going on a path that you think you might need to. Even if it's like, even if you're homebound or bedbound or anything, depending on the day, at least for me, it was like I could, I could possibly read a little more or listen to a podcast or learn a little more or even just express myself or think a little more on something or just there was always I could I could expand in some way and um I think that that kept me going and so I just wasn't willing to and, and this is also like there were plenty of days when I was like I'm sick I need you to accept that I have to accept that and that was hard but that was and that's part of it I think you can do those things simultaneously and you might have to if you have a long-term illness it's not a denial that, you know, denial is not, not healthy. And, and that's not fair. So Jennifer, we have people reaching out to us all the time, telling us they're getting mixed signals from different doctors. And as some doctors are giving them other diagnoses that they think are not related to Lyme. We know in your over 30 year journey, you saw hundreds of doctors and were misdiagnosed with countless different things. So can you give us some idea of some of these labels you were put with before you got your Lyme diagnosis that you now attribute to Lyme disease that can maybe help these people that are reaching out to us on a regular basis? 
Yes. Um, I feel like anything that's chronic and, and not solved, my sort of little key for myself, especially in retrospect, is like fibromyalgia. People who have that, I don't think fibromyalgia is an end-road diagnosis, at least most of the time and not in anyone that I know. It's usually a symptom of something. And, um, and other chronic conditions, like I think oftentimes, but probably not exclusively, I might get some heat for this, but like a dysautonomia condition is often a symptom of something else. Um, if you have sort of, and, and I think a lot of the, a lot of the times it's like when these symptoms, the ones that I got, like migraines, really severe TMJ, um, asterisk on the interstitial cystitis, um, insomnia, I have, I have a list. It's the one that I gave you, but I want to read off because it was, um, it was very long. <laughs> um, there, my point about these is that oftentimes people get diagnosed with these things and then they get medicine for them. And I think that when that's all fine in a way, but the big key is that if the medicine doesn't work and you just keep taking more and more, then that might not be your problem. That it might, it might be something else that's causing all of this. And I, I know that, that some of this is like, okay, and you're just basically throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. But this happens for a lot of people who have Lyme disease. And it certainly is what happened for me. I had a just raging set of infections. And meanwhile, I had been taking medications for, for everything under the sun. Like I said, like fibromyalgia, chronic infections, inflammation, hormone imbalances, insomnia, arthritis, um, allergies, asthma, I see, reflux. I had gastroparesis, GI problems, uh, all kinds of dizziness and brain, brain fog, but the medications didn't make me better. I would have bouts of feeling better and it was always after taking antibiotics for something, hint, but then I would go right back down. And so my, my feeling on it now is like, um, it wasn't really until I started taking the correct, um, for me, a correct combination, a working combination of Lyme uh, related medications that I started to see any real improvement. And in the meantime, I was just kind of stacking on um, names for my symptoms that I wouldn't say I have you know, 20 illnesses. It was like, I clearly have one, maybe two, but they don't have names yet. And I need to find those names so that I can actually start getting better. And when I saw the asterisk for the IC for me is that I also found out the same year that I got diagnosed with Lyme and co-infections, I got diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome the hypermobility spectrum uh, connective tissue disorder. Um, it's genetic. And so some of these things I would have anyway. Um, I have joint problems. I, have in, I would have interstitial cystitis anyway. But um, would they feel as bad? <laughs> would they be as severe without Lyme disease? And for me, I know the answer is no, because when my condition my Lyme infections are more under control, those symptoms for those things are also more under control. 
So Jennifer, you mentioned that you have EDS as well, which is a genetic disorder, yeah. but we have found that many of our guests in the past, and you're our 187th podcast guest, have also had EDS. So do you think that there's a connection there that maybe possibly EDS makes you more susceptible to chronic Lyme versus somebody who doesn't have EDS? Maybe they can keep it at bay and their bodies can fight off Lyme better than somebody with EDS? I definitely do. This is a personal theory. Um, I would love for someone to do a study on this someday, but I think it makes sense with people who have trouble with their connective tissues and you know, susceptible connective tissues. And if Lyme disease, the first thing it, it attacks is your connective tissues. I think it makes sense that EDS patients would be more susceptible to long-term Lyme disease. And um, I think that it would be really fascinating to do a series of studies on this because these kinds of patients need help. And also there may be, maybe there's something to it that can help everyone who knows, but I make sense. To, I'm not surprised to hear you say that. And we've also seen a, a large percentage of our podcast guests have also talked about having interstitial societies as well. And I believe you're saying that the EDS sort of caused the IC. So for those that have talked to us in the past or that are listening that have an IC diagnosis, but not an EDS diagnosis, what is the connection between the two in case these listeners want to learn more about possibly exploring the option of having EDS in addition to IC? I really don't. I don't know about that one. Um, my mother's longtime friend who has EDS uh, looked at, has known me my entire life and just sort of watched me and my body type and the way my body moves. She had having EDS herself had suggested a long time ago to my mother that she thought I had it. And then when I got my, my IC diagnosis, she was like, really, I think she has EDS because the bladder is lined with connective tissue. Your whole body, people don't know that your whole body is full of connective tissue. It's not actually just the space between your joints and all of that. It's, it's everywhere. And so your body isn't really quite held together. Um, the same way uh, a body without EDS is. And, um, and so it's possible. And I would just say, see a geneticist. In my case, not everyone with interstitial cystitis diagnoses has, um, uh, people get diagnosed in different ways. I had a cystoscopy with hydrodistension after very long-term antibiotic therapy and other trials to see if my symptoms would go away. And I had, I think, one of the one of, if not the the worst cases that my doctor at the time had seen, just because it had gotten so bad. Because I'd gotten used to being in pain, and, and I would describe my experience as unpleasant, even though I couldn't stand up straight for like a year. <laughs> and I and um, I got yelled at after that, and by the nurse practitioner who said, "You can never use the word unpleasant again." But I don't think I've uh, adhered to my promise. I feel bad about that, but. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure if that was just kind of its own thing because of the hallmark symptoms that it, that, that test showed. I don't, that's not just a Lyme inflammation situation in my case. Jennifer, talk to us about, for those that are listening, I don't know what EDS is or IC. First, can you talk to us about what is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and what are the symptoms? Um, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is... It's a connective tissue disorder, essentially. There are multiple subtypes. It's genetic, so you, there's not a, you just get it. You have it when you're born. It runs in the family. Um, there are a variety of subtypes. Some are more dangerous than others because, uh, for example, if you have a vascular type, people are really, might be very concerned about your heart. Um, but 
it can be considered degenerative in that if you have enough trouble with your joints, they can, you're more prone to injury and things can occur over time that can become really affect your quality of life. And usually people with EDS present, actually people with EDS present in all variety of ways, because as I mentioned, connective tissue is all throughout the body. And so people will often have joints that come out of place, either dislocate or subluxate, which is just like a sliding and not a full dislocation. Um, and really prone to injuries, but also a lot of like GI distress and organ problems and like sensitivities. A lot of the symptoms can overlap with something like Lyme disease because of your general sensitivity to the world, essentially. Um, but it's not uh, as it's, it's not Lyme disease. <laughs> and interstitial cystitis is a separate condition that can also overlap with, with both. It's its own diagnosis. It can, it can be, but it's often seen in patients with Lyme disease and EDS, and it's an inflammation specifically of the bladder. Um, it's like pelvic inflammatory disorder. And um, there are hallmark symptoms. A lot of it is like pain and frequency of your, uh, like needing to go to the bathroom and, um, but there are other things that you might find uh, people with it often have like chronic infections. They don't need to, but it can come along with, um, certain sensitivities to food and, uh, your bladder can shrink and actually like grow extra collagen and get hard and harder because of the collagen and you can get, um, muscle spasms around and it can ulcer it. It's, it's not pleasant when it gets, oh, I did it. I said the unpleasant thing. Mm. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it, it can be rough. And so um, people with IC, especially really bad IC, have a lot of pain in their lives. So let's go back to Lyme disease. I mean, you had a ton, dozens and dozens of misdiagnoses. You saw over 100 doctors over 30 years. Did any of these doctors ever suggest Lyme disease to you, to you or your family? Not to my knowledge. The, the only, I mean, I know that I had Lyme disease tests, just Western blot tests, um, when I had general panels done because I eventually saw some of those, um, some of those tests later but they were, those were negative and nobody brought up Lyme disease as an option to me. I was instead told things like, we know there are people like you who have these problems, but we don't know what it is. And you're just ahead of medicine. Sorry. It was that kind of thing. The only person who really brought it up as an option was the person who eventually did the proper testing and diagnosed me. So talk to us about before you got diagnosed and you were managing these symptoms, did you find anything that helped you with your symptoms before you got the diagnosis, meaning any sort of physical therapy, any sort of herbals, any sort of medication that helped you manage your symptoms that you just sort of stumbled into before getting your Lyme diagnosis? Well, when I, I started with, um, let's see, the medications for my allergies helped a lot. The uh, therapies that I got for, for the IC helped a lot. Changing my diet helped a lot because I like, I guess I was just so inflamed <laughs> that I needed to make some major adjustments that I was initially very mad about having to do. 
because I used to uh, bake uh, for a, a small portion of my life for a living. And so I was like, no, I can't, <laughs> can't even do that. Can't even eat any of that. It's annoying, but it's fine. Um, I, I made a lot of lifestyle changes. Uh, some of, but really I was taking a lot of Advil, which is not great. Um, I, uh, what else helped? I went to physical therapy when I was feeling healthy enough, when I could uh, build muscle and exercise that really helped. Um, but I would always just, I would always just go up and down. It was, it was really in retrospect, it's really obvious and easy to see that when I, I would get an infection, feel terrible take antibiotics, feel better, do as much as I could, get an infection and go through the cycle again. And it just took a very long time for anyone to be like, hey, <laughs> I've seen this before. It's just insane to think that you had all of these different symptoms and conditions and every time antibiotics made you feel better, but nobody ever thought, hey, maybe there's a bacterial infection like Lyme disease, we should explore that or discuss that with Jennifer and her family. And, and on that note, how did you finally get Lyme in the picture? I think when you were around 32 years old. Well, um, I was, I'd been singing a lot and for a long time, I was singing actively working and traveling and I kept getting infections. I'd had, um, I'd had my tonsils out. I'd had, I kept getting throat infections before then and I kept getting sinus infections. My sinuses were completely blocked. I had them unblocked and I kept getting infections. I saw this top otolaryngologist in New York. It was wonderful. And uh, which is a voice doctor. So like an ENT, but who specializes in voice and um, who sees tons of singers. And I saw him enough times he had performed the surgery. And uh, eventually he was like, I, it was recommended to me by my voice teacher. It was, and eventually he was just like, I don't think this is a bacterial infection that I can solve. He thought it was something else. And he sent me to an allergist that he, he believed that I had maybe candida or something. And he sent me to an allergist that he knew specialized in that, who was a very um, curious, uh, persistent individual. I went to that allergist and because I had taken so many antibiotics, of course I had candida anyway, but that doctor asked me a lot of questions. My health was overall just awful. I kept, there was so much that had happened in the meantime. I had recently been told I had a post vagal neuropathy, which I believe was probably may have been true, but my digestive system had shut down. I needed a surgery after that, I had lost a ton of, I had gained weight from medication and then lost a ton of weight after the fact because I could not eat anything. And I had severe dysautonomia, which I didn't know was called dysautonomia at the time. So I was just I, totally non-functional. Meanwhile, I'm still trying to sing. So when I have a good moment, I'm like, I'm fine now, I'm better. And going to this doctor and being like, just fix a sinus infection, I have stuff to do. And he's like, mm go to this doctor, maybe he can help you. And finally this doctor who was an allergist decided to look at the whole picture. He asked me a lot of questions. He asked me specific questions that I had never been asked, like about my joint pain. Did it migrate? Did, did, how does, do I have a stiff neck? 
do I have it all the time? Really specific questions that seemed like, well, yeah, because I'd been experiencing this every day for who knew how long at that point. And then he asked me, have you been tested for Lyme disease? And I think I've heard other people say this on your podcast. I said, yeah, I don't have that. Like, I, I don't, I know I don't have that. <laughs> I've been tested. For, yeah. And it was, I was, I don't know. I don't even know why I was so <laughs> against the idea, but I was just like, I, 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 I definitely have. I probably think I figured because of where I grew up and all of that, that of course this has been ruled out. Ugh. Okay. And he was, and he probably like my, that voice teacher with the opera, he was like, okay. And he, and he tested me anyway. And on top of that, he tested me for co-infections, which I had never been tested for before. And that's how we got my diagnosis. I, yeah. Jennifer, do you know what testing he used? Did he send it over to Igenix? Did he send it to Armin Labs? Was it a local, you know, LabCorp quest? He sent it to Igenix, I believe. And what were the results, I'm almost afraid to ask, of the Igenix test? Well, the Igenix test was not so bad. I was Igenix positive, um, but not CDC positive for Lyme disease, but I was super positive for ehrlichiosis. I had Bartonella and I had Babesia. Those were the things that I was tested for. I eventually got tested for a bunch of other co-infections, but those were like the big ones and the things that I struggled with the most. But it, it really put all of the all of the pieces together because I think that if people really doubt a Lyme diagnosis and Lyme testing, check for co-infections. <laughs> You've been bitten by a tick. <laughs> if, if they're there, I mean, why are we, why are we confused here? And it was just extremely obvious. And uh, that changed a lot for me. To so what, Jennifer, what was it like when you found out you had Lyme, Ehrlichia, Bartonella, and Babesia after running this hygienics test with your allergist, did you think that you were just going to be able to get treated and get better? Or did you realize how severe this was and how, how much of a long road you had ahead of you? Oh, I, <laughs> I did a lot of research. I, at that point, I, I think around that time I was, I had sustained a leg injury. It was like, roughly around that time maybe a little bit later in the year but I had severe neurological symptoms that especially once I started any antibiotics I just we can get into that in a second but like I basically just sat down and read everything <laughs> everything I could find every book every article and I knew that it was going to be a long long road and I had already I also knew that I'd already been on antibiotics for a significant portion of my life. And here we still were. And I didn't recall any recent tick bite. So I was under no illusion that it was going to be an easy road. And I actually, um, I didn't really start treating right away because I, I found a more Lyme specific practitioner to, to start my care. Um, but I actually, to illustrate how serious I took it, I stopped singing. I was like, I'm, I'm not going to do this at the same time. My body is going to shut down further. And I, I, I know I'm going to get worse before I get better. And I'm not going to be able to worry about these two things at the same time. 
Jennifer, give us an idea of what neurological symptoms you're experiencing now at this time and how they're affecting your everyday life. Well, this is one of the reasons I haven't told my story, <laughs> um, even though I've, I've indicated part of it, but 2017 to 2018 were very rough. Um, I, I went from being like I, I had, I had migraines constantly. I had brain fog. I could work through them all the time. I started to have an occasional tremor. I could work through that. I started to have poor memory and concentration issues, but I could, I could, I could work through, I could work through that. The leg injury that I indicated was a bad sign because it was a stress injury that I didn't notice. Um, I, I just had a strange gait and suddenly I couldn't walk. My right leg stopped being usable. I asked a physiatrist that I've been seeing for years and trust tremendously um, if is this normal <laughs> or is this a Lyme disease thing, do you think? And she was like, uh, this is a Lyme disease thing. And it turned, I had an MRI and it turned out that I had a, a tear in my hip, tears in my muscles and my tendons were all inflamed. And, and um, it, there wasn't, it wasn't even from an incident. It was just something had been going terribly wrong and I didn't even feel it. I, I was losing feeling in a lot of areas of my body which was resulting in um, period, periodic like uh, pain attacks because I would develop spasms and dislocations and that would displace ribs and press on my lungs and things like that. And I wouldn't notice them, but until I couldn't breathe and I was, I'd sweat and I'd start shaking and it was really, uh, that would get really bad, but that wasn't even the worst of it. And so that, that progressed after I started treating Lyme disease. Um, I, I really changed my, my personality changed. I, I had, I just declined basically, which is probably unsurprising. I think most of us do at least for a time. Um, but I, when the Googling that I started doing was what are these symptoms perhaps? And, um, I really needed to see a neurologist which I did, who specialized in Lyme disease as well. She kind of confirmed what it seemed like. Uh, I had, I was displaying the symptoms of Parkinson's because my, my voice had gotten, I was always able to sing, but my voice had gotten, probably up until then I couldn't, but my voice had gotten very, very quiet. I, uh, my hand, I couldn't use my hands. I, my handwriting was tiny. I, I couldn't hold on to anything. If I had to write a card, which my, my, I had a friend help me. <laughs> um, I, I couldn't tie my shoes. I, I really couldn't, I really couldn't get anywhere. I had a permanent tremor. Um, I was really, it was very bad. And then in, and then in 2018, I was already at such a state that I, I actually sustained uh, a TIA, my first TIA in my, in my old apartment because I was exposed to a chemical that is very, it's like a dangerous chemical for everyone um, because they were doing some construction in a nearby unit and they didn't ventilate it. It smells like ammonia. 
it's um, very dangerous. And I wasn't getting much blood flow to my brain. And I was already having severe, I was like mast cell reactions and severe, already had severe neurological symptoms. And I just, that was, that was my day to have a stroke. <laughs> and uh, that was the worst, that was the worst day of my life because it, yeah. And so um, that, that was like the day that changed everything. And that actually happened another time too. Now, do you believe Jennifer that this TIA or this small stroke occurred and would have occurred regardless of your health conditions because of what was being done with the poor ventilation? Or do you think that you were just so weakened and you had this as a combination of both the exposure to the chemicals and your weakened body from Lyme disease? Definitely the latter. I was, it happened because I was so weakened. There were plenty of other people in the building. Nobody else had to go to the hospital. I, I had also been exposed to it before when I first moved in and I didn't have to go to the hospital then. Um, I, my neurological symptoms were so bad already and I was already having such dysautonomia, as I mentioned, and my blood, my blood flow was terrible at the time. And it was just, a, and it was so highly reactive to everything. And it was just a combination of factors that I did not get what my brain did not get what it needed at the time. And you mentioned that this was the day that sort of changed everything. Give us an idea of what was going on at this time specifically. Were you treating already with a Lyme specialist? And what do you mean by this is the day that everything changed for you? Describe for us a change in your life after this moment. Well, I was treating with a Lyme specialist, but I was not getting better. It was either the early stages of treatment for me in terms of like, you know, the sort of a breakdown before you improve situation or just the wrong combination of, you know, not, we hadn't hit the right mark in terms of what I was taking. Um, and, and so I was just very physically weak already. Um, and so, so that day I just experienced the classic, actually classic stroke symptoms. And I, and they were very, very scary. And I don't have a full memory of the entire day, but I, I uh, got, see, this is actually when I try to tell the story, my speech gets strange <laughs> because, because it's, it's just really traumatic. But I, um, I, I slowed down. I couldn't use my arms and my, and I, I missed my face when I was trying to do something and I couldn't walk and I, and I, I, my, I dropped, I fell. And then I just started convulsing my, like I had uncontrolled movements and my, I was swallowing my tongue. You know, I, I, I got carried into the hospital and the craziest thing that happened there was that I didn't get treated and I didn't get treated because someone said the phrase Lyme disease. And uh, someone was trying to advocate for me and they, cause I couldn't speak. I, you know, I had, I was swallowing my tongue and someone said she has Lyme disease and I was treated as if I was seeking drugs. And so I just sat there, laid there for 10 hours in that state before anybody decided to do an MRI even. And someone turned to me, one thing I remember, because it was just it's seared into my brain, was 
a nurse looked at me and said, I don't think this is happening because of your Lyme's disease. And I knew, okay, well, she's calling it Lyme's disease. That's a bad sign. And, you know, and um, yeah, and it was, uh, and after that, I, I, for a long time, I had a lot of trouble speaking and I really didn't know if I would get better. So that's when the, the really bad Parkinsonism signs were there to stay because I had trouble forming words. I had a 10 second short-term memory. I uh, couldn't turn to the right. <laughs> I couldn't really use my right side. And um, I couldn't, yeah, I really couldn't communicate. And it was, that was, I had always said throughout my, my life, because we've talked about how I've had these symptoms for so long. I've had these infections in my body. I have this genetic thing, but I've managed. And I would always tell myself, well, at least I have my brain. <laughs> as long as I have my brain, I'm okay. And I'll just say that to myself. I'm not like going to say that to other people because that's ridiculous. Why would anyone say that to other people? But that was just something that I had for me. And then when I lost my brain, I got upset. <laughs> I was like, well, what now? <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> but there was something on the other side. However, in the moment, it was, it was very hard because um, I really had to I didn't know if I would ever get better. I didn't know if that was going to be, if that was it. Jennifer, I do want to ask about your family support and your, your social support at this time, because you had mentioned that your parents were sort of confused about what was going on. When you got your diagnosis shortly before you had this TIA, did that, did that validate your illness with your parents and finally give them the, the confirmation they needed to really believe that you had Lyme disease and needed proper treatment? Yes. Um, Yes, it's yes, and still with one of those asterisks because they, it's like, and I think a lot of people go through this. They're so on board. They were, they wanted to, they wanted to be on board. And yet there's still, a, there was still a bit of a disconnect between how they felt about it and how they wanted to feel about it and how they reacted in the moment to experiencing it and like seeing it unfold in front of their eyes. And it was actually like, I think when they, they came to the hospital and saw me like that, it, and I was uncontrollably moving in that way. And I, some the daughter who had once been relatively articulate could not speak and was just a different person. Um, I think that really changed things for them and started them on the road of, of learning to adapt probably just more quickly. And what do you, just to go a little bit deeper on that, do you mean that they would see you being sick and then they would get frustrated and possibly doubt that everything was truly caused by Lyme disease up until the, the moment in the hospital? Is that what you mean, Jennifer? They believed about Lyme disease, but it was also like, for example, we, they, if I want to be nice to my parents, <laughs> they, um, we went to like, they, they went to a, this was a learning experience. We'll put it that way. We went to a gala, uh, the once, like I, I haven't been diagnosed for that long. Um, and they wanted to go to a gala to be very supportive. And this was like during my sickest year, but they wanted me to come. And yet I was like, uh, and they had a montage at the gala of the patients, of patients. And I was like, those are my peers. I shouldn't like be sitting here. I was an hour late because 
I felt it was so it was like impossible to get there. And when I got there, they were they were ringing an auction bell, and I was it was like a you know an ice pick through my eyeball every time. And they were like, "Why aren't you having any fun?" And I was just you know trying to explain this is this is not what why are we here <laughs> you know um it, it was stuff like that where they or it's such a bizarre thing to even complain about because they're, they're trying to be so supportive and yet people have it's people still it takes a minute to learn and there were other discussions that you know in order to that i would keep private i guess but that were a little bit harder to deal with but it's stuff like uh you know I'm sure a lot of families go through this. Are the best of intentions, but they, they really couldn't appreciate how sick you were and why going to that event would be so harmful to your health, both physical and mental health, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, that's basically a, a silly, frivolous, like almost like highly privileged. It's a, it, no, that's a highly privileged example, but there are more basic ones that in the moment felt terrible, but in the the broad scheme of course they've been extremely supportive and they've tried it's also just hard because I, i'm guessing they feel bad <laughs> you know i had it as a kid i've had it for a long time they have done their best and they keep trying i think i think a lot of the trouble with family and friends for many of us certainly for me is that is the consistent addition of layers of complexity people think they understand what's going on they think they know how to deal with you they think they know what you need they think they know how to help and then you're like well there's this extra thing or oh actually i can't and there's nothing wrong with your doing that but people have a really hard time feeling comfortable in that situation jennifer i don't want to say this the wrong way but I, I know you mentioned that sort of a privileged scenario, but it's also a very real and valid scenario for you to feel the way you felt because you had a supportive family and it's very obvious your, your, your parents love you and care about you and want to help you. But it's hard for people, and I think Rich can speak to this, who don't have Lyme disease to really understand how it affects you from a whole body, physical and emotional standpoint. I think that was a really good example of describing how there's a disconnect between people that want to be supportive and not knowing the right way to be supportive of people who are really in the throes of Lyme disease. So uh, that's just a, a side observation. But I also wanted to ask you, what antibiotics were you taking with the Lyme litter doctor when you got this TIA that you feel really weren't being helpful in your healing journey? I think at the time I was taking, ooh, this is critical too. Um, I was either taking doxycycline and amoxicillin or um, shoot. So really a cocktail of antibiotics, it sounds yes, like. Maybe some doxy, amoxicillin. Yeah, but there's one of the, the class of drugs that with the black box that I'm gonna get it. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> the, the, the kind that that no one should ever take. Oh, now you got us intrigued over here. Yeah, it's uh, fluoroquinolones. And why do you say no one should ever take that? I mean, Cipro, that's the one. Cipro. Um, yeah, well, I 
it's not fair for me to say that, but I, I in your experience, and that's yeah, fair. I mean, it's fair to say I, in your experience. I find, especially, well, certainly someone with if you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I do not recommend because it affects your tendons, and in a it's like extreme risk for tendonitis and tendon rupture and that's something that happened to me and none of your doctors connected the dots no i had eds and you were now had lyme and you're taking this antibiotic which is known to have this conflict between the two right and i've taken i have had a lot of cipro in life so i'm not sure how the timing checked out on that one but you know so do you think that the Cipro is actually causing you to get even worse? And then you had this exposure to the chemicals and, and your body was just so weak that really that was your point where you had just this, probably the worst crash during your journey. It sounds like. If, whether I took it right then or not, yes, just generally, um, that was the worst crash for sure. And then actually the same thing in my apartment happened two months later. From the same exposure? I moved shortly after that, but um, yes. And then I had to go to the hospital again. And at the hospital, the second time they pressed me, they, they treated me more quickly and gave me, you know, they did imaging more quickly, but the, what happened the second time was they pressed me on the name of the doctor who had prescribed me my medications and I wouldn't give it because I knew what was going on but all of this stuff is just insane. I mean, I've been, been to the hospital twice. I've been re- uh, refused care twice for a very obvious emergency condition because people are biased against Lyme disease. So you had a stroke, you landed in the hospital, and now you find yourself caught in the middle of the Lyme wars and these ER doctors are more concerned with who's prescribing you your medication for Lyme rather than helping you with the real danger that's right in front of them. Correct. We clearly have a long way to go with our, with our efforts here. Um, so you mentioned that you moved. So was this, when did you move after the second exposure or was this exposure in a new apartment? Oh, no, that was the same apartment. I moved after that. And it, it just seems totally mind blowing that after the first experience, I'm sure there was some sort of communication that this happened <laughs> with you, right? And, yes. and, and they were aware. And then it happened again two months later that that in itself, again, it just seems to be that it's just these the cards are getting stacked against you in every area but you know we know the end of the story is is who you are now so it's there's a there's a light at the end of the tunnel so we're getting there yeah (laughs) so talk to us about now what happened you have your second stroke you're in the hospital you're being pressured by everybody what happens after this what treatment do you get and how do you start to progress after that well that's around the time that i started seeing the the neurologist i think i jumped the gun when i mentioned her earlier but I started seeing the neurologist who did more testing and it was more detailed and gave me a different set of medications. That was a combination of antibiotics and herbals. I also eventually started doing IVIG for small fiber neuropathy. And I started to see turnaround after that. My, I walked in with the early, seemingly early onset Parkinson's. I had a SPECT scan. It didn't show that I had Parkinson's, but it showed that my brain was all the way slowed down, that I had a brain, it actually said, brain injury. And when I went back in and she was like, when was your brain injury? And after those experiences in the hospital, I was just kind of, uh, I felt a lot of feelings that I, at the time I couldn't even name. (laughs) It was just so, it was too much. Um, But I really did start to see turnaround. Um, It took a long time, 
And I was so, I was really impatient to kind of get back to life, but that was not, that was just me being ridiculous. Um, and uh, and I, I moved. I started to see a functional medicine practitioner about a year after that and started adding in other types of IVs. And um, it's been a long, it, yeah, I mean, it's not that simple. <laughs> so let's go, let's dig a little bit deeper, just a little bit. So you, yeah. you started with IVIG with your neurologist and you said that helped a lot. It sounds like with a lot of your Parkinson-like symptoms that you were having with, with the shaking and the tremors. And that was a pretty quick benefit, which is great. And then about a year later, you started to introduce other IVs with now more of a functional doctor that you found. What were these IVs that you stacked onto the IVIG a year later that were helping you as well? Right. It was actually, I have to make sure to clarify that it was IVIG, but antibiotics for me, in my case, antibiotics helped it was, but it was the right combination. So in the beginning, so the ones that helped, and it was a combination of antibiotics, antivirals, antimalarials, herbs, and IVIG and antifungals. So what worked at the time was tetracycline, rifampin. Um, I took, uh, Malarone and um, I'm blanking on the other one, the yellow one that's gross. <laughs> but the, the other one for Babesia, I took um, oregano and artemisinin and antifungal medications and the IVIG. And then okay. once I started to, sorry? You did all that at the, at the same time with your neurologist before the functional doctor? Yes. Okay. And so that really is a combination of Western and Eastern medicine. You were combining herbals with traditional antibiotics, anti-malaria medication, antiviral medication, and together the, co the combined effect really was beneficial for that one yes. year period, it sounds like. Yes, very much so. And then I, um, and then I started to see a functional medication, medicine doctor so I could kind of like get my entire system a little more up and running. And I added ozone, which really helped give me a lot more energy and I did I other IVs as well vitamins and things like that because I was deficient in just about everything which was kind of an indicator I suppose that my infections may not have been under control I went into that office with scurvy so I like to joke that I was a pirate um because who has scurvy these days me <laughs> dumb but I, no, yeah, I, I'm yeah. trying to hold my laughter it's not dumb it's fine I it was right before Halloween so I just was a pirate for all it's so stupid That's awesome. um, I, I yeah so so that really really helped a lot and the, the timing on that one is just a little bit silly because that was the end of 2019 to the beginning of 2020 and who didn't have a ridiculous 2020 mm. I had a ridiculous 2020 well, before we go there, Jennifer, I do want to ask, give us an idea of some of the gains you made in your health from the time you started all of the antifungals, malaria medication, the antivirals, the antibiotics, the IVIG with your neurologist up until the time you started with the functional doctor a year later. When you visited the functional doctor at that time, give us some real world examples of things you were doing and feeling that you never thought you would have been able to do or feel after being so sick. Oh, sure. Well, I went from having no energy. I spent those two years, 2017, mid 2017 to about mid 2019, mostly in bed. And I started having energy again and go and uh, 
I even started exercising again. I went from all that I could start it to use to strengthen my right side again. Um, my I started to be able to use my hands a bit more. My memory improved a bit, and that was a that was a slow one. And the the memory and the speech were both slow, and the people around me were actually really supportive and they'd be like you're fine and I but I knew I wasn't I wasn't back yet um but I I was able to go to uh the wedding of one of my best friends in France and that was such a victory for me because that was in 2019 and I I was really not sure that I would be able to make it but it was so important to me and I thought the year earlier I thought I would never have been able to go ever but I made it that's amazing yeah and I I mean the year earlier, I was, I was a shell. I, I had, I didn't blink. I couldn't, I couldn't really speak. If I was in a chair, I, if I thought about anything, I would think I might fall off of this chair for, you know, for basically no reason, but just no, I, no concept of my space in the world. And I didn't think I could really get through anything and I'd react to the air, but I ended up a year later, I was in France and um, very lucky. And so I, I was making gains and um, I would find myself going through, it was still hard to do things like take a shower. I mean, everything still took a lot of work and I had to plan in a a lot of rest and I had to be careful and I had to accept that it wasn't all going to feel good all the time because it didn't. But I would also notice that, um, you know, I would celebrate the small victories and I would notice that I would, uh, you know, I would take a shower one day and suddenly it was like, oh yeah, eighth grade. Oh yeah. And I, and the pieces of my memory that had been completely blacked out were starting to fill back in. And that was weird, but cool. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's a very inspirational clip you just gave us for people that are in the throes of it and are where you were to let them know that they can get through it and get to the other side. So that, that's super powerful. And I do want to get to, of course, 2020, the year that sucked for everybody. <laughs> and it sounds like it sucked even worse for you, Jennifer. So tell us what happened in 2020. That's when you kind of kicked off your, your functional doctor. And it sounds like more, more to the story there from, from your perspective. I don't think mine was worse than it was for other people, but it was bizarre. Let's just say that. Uh, I, so I had been doing better. Great. I'd been doing better. I had made advancements. I moved, but I moved into an apartment with mold. Cool. Who hasn't done that? I have to check that one off the the bingo list. I don't like sickness bingo, but just, I know how common that is. It happened. January of 2020 in Manhattan, I had a new tick bite. And this time I got a bullseye (laughs) and it was, and I saw the bullseye because it was purple. And I, and I, so you're the question that you asked, what would you do if you saw a tick biting you? I was like, oh, I know exactly what I would do <laughs> because I, it, I didn't see the actual tick. That was the only, I, I didn't get to, you know, remove pull it, it out, r- remove it and send it to the proper authorities. But it was like, oh, okay. And I, I'm, I'm weirdly good in a crisis at this point. So in, you know, my body actually feels it for me, which is the only not great thing, but I, I just, I had doctors. I knew what to request. I was not on antibiotics at the time. I went right on them (laughs) and I, but that was, um, that was fun. Definitely had a couple flashbacks, not great. Um, but then I, I did get COVID in, March 
and the, like very and early. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but before we get to the COVID piece, when you <laughs> found the, when you found the, I had so many questions that we did yeah. so much to your story. When you found the bullseye rash, what exactly did you do to treat to ensure that you wouldn't have a relapse or did you have a relapse? Is that oh, part I, of the COVID piece of it? I had it. It is part. Yeah. I had a relapse. I, I took, I took antibiotics. I took doxycycline and, um, Keftin, Seftin, Seftin. Seftin. Yeah. Thank you. I'm like, <laughs> I did, I did a, a procedure two days ago for my tendons that I must've, I planned very intelligently right before a podcast so that I would be in really top shape to <laughs> like just remarkable foresight on my part. And anyway, so yes, I took, I took them both and I, I think I was doing fine, except it was hard to notice because I wasn't really trying to go anywhere. And then I immediately, it, they overlapped with the COVID symptoms. So they, I was finishing up the antibiotics and then I started to get COVID symptoms. And the reason I got it so early was because I had visited my hometown and my hometown was like area ground zero for COVID in this area from New Rochelle. Not, not what you want to be known for, but that happened. That was a rough experience. I was in the hospital for that. And um, not, I, didn't, I did not want to go back to the hospital because I'd had uh, such awful times before. Um, but I was actually treated very well then. I was put in the quarantine unit and they were like, this is it. And I, I've never seen anyone I'm so scared. The people there were, people working in the hospital were terrified. Um, so that was just a, yeah, that was, that was terrible. And so what so, was that like for you though, Jennifer? You're in a hospital with the people that are, who are supposed to be taking care of you are, are horribly afraid of what's going on. What was that like for you being a patient during the pandemic? Well, I actually walked in and I had a, I had a panic attack by myself because I walked in under something, a huge sign that said something about a stroke. Like, so the word stroke was like a huge, huge word. And I walked in the door under there and, it, and my legs were just kind of, were just jelly and like lead jelly, then they were like, no, 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 no. Because I, I was in for, a, I went in to get a test and they, instead of giving me a test, they said, send her to room 11 and room 11 happened to be the quarantine room in the ER because I, apparently I was that sick, but I walked in sort of Monty Python, like I'm, I'm better, I'm fine. And like, nope. And like, do you know you're not breathing right? And it was, but I consider myself lucky. It was just so strange. So I had my 45 minutes, but I've been through enough things. And I, I was, I, I, I got myself all right. And I really felt for them. I like, I, I didn't feel um, uncared for actually. I didn't feel like they, um, I could just feel their, their fear. I mean, they're humans too. And I, I, they were doing a great job on my care and I was just, but I definitely made a note of it and like, you know, thank them because I was just like, oh my God, this is, um, it was really, it was really like visceral and palpable what, what they were experiencing. And it was so early in the process. And I can't, I can't really tell that story without, without making note of it because it was so, it was really something, it was really significant. So how long were you in the hospital for? And, and I don't, it sounds like you weren't one, you didn't get put on was, a ventilator and you, you were no. able to get through it and get out and, yeah. and, and walk us through 
the time in the hospital and then when you got out, what kind of shape you were in and did it bring back some of your Lyme symptoms? I was just in there for a day, um, but I, I definitely had the, my, my body just did not like the situation. So I had a last lasting problems with breathing, which I think are mostly resolved actually. But between that and living in a moldy apartment and the recent tick bite, I, it took the better part of that year and moving again for me to realize that, oh, this Lyme, this new Lyme disease is actually super unresolved because I, I recognize I had to kind of eliminate the more recent symptoms and the, the exposure that I was experiencing. And then because I, I knew I had to tackle those things. Like I had to get out of the moldy environment. I had to take care of my stuff that had been exposed to mold. I had to, uh, you know, take time and take some precautions to resolve the really acute stuff from COVID. And then since I talk to Lyme disease patients every day and I work in the Lyme disease space every day, I should have known once I listed my symptoms, my remaining symptoms that I was dealing with constantly, I was like, oh my God, I know exactly what this is. I, I can't believe I haven't listed them out loud before. And it was, I have I definitely have a raging case of all of these Lyme symptoms back. And I went back on antibiotics and now IV antibiotics as well and intramuscular injections of Rocephin. And um, since then, I've been feeling so much better. So you, you had COVID, you had reactivated Lyme, you were in a moldy environment. And you credit the IV antibiotics and the the other antibiotics, I believe, are just shots, right? They're like shots you can put in your butt of antibiotics or anywhere. I think most people put them in their butt, right? I put them in my arm. Your arm. Okay, I'm sorry. No, um, it's fine. I I'm weird. <laughs> so, but you credit you credit the arm antibiotic shots and the IV antibiotics with helping you get over your reactivated Lyme disease and also your COVID symptoms. It sounds like. Yeah, it was so hard. I mean, and I, for anybody, and I'm sure there's so many people who've had to go through both in the past year plus, year and a half, it's so hard to like to distinguish what's causing your body to go haywire on you. But at some point, if you have Lyme in your body, then you have to address the Lyme disease again. You have to do something. In my case, because I had had such a recent re-exposure to Lyme disease, the antibiotics were a useful tool for me. I also am taking herbs and doing plenty of other things to kind of calm my system down, but I had tried those before I went back on antibiotics and they weren't working on their own. So they're a nice addition to the antibiotic therapy, but they weren't enough on their own to combat the reinfection and, and the COVID it sounds like. Yeah. What herbs specifically do you know? Are you on any protocol or just a variety of different types of herbs that you're taking? It's a variety. And I'm, I'm, I'm really um, not as diligent about taking for some reason. I've taken up enough of your time. I can tell Rich is ready to kill me over there to, to speak. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask my final question and hand it over to Rich's, you know, this entire time, you've just been a story of hope and inspiration. You've gone through so many obstacles and, and come out the other side. So give us an example of something you've done in the past few months that you never would have dreamed of doing back when you first got diagnosed with Lyme disease. There's a lot. I, I work for Project Lyme. I'm a working board member of Generation Lyme. 
I also I have like four jobs now, which when I was diagnosed, I wasn't doing anything. I sang in a concert, which you saw for the first time. And I hadn't sung for people in like four years. I do work for a doctor and her practice. I, there's, I get to help people. It's nice. So Jen, talk to us about how your Lyme disease journey triggered the beautiful work that you're now doing with not-for-profits and for other entities. Meaning you went from being a singer to being a very different type of professional, all of which was driven by your Lyme experience. So talk to us about that. Well, there's a very, really practical step-by-step of how that happened. And then there's a little other, like longer version, but, but I very practically, I had made a friend, uh, through Instagram, a Lyme friend, as so many of us have, who it turned out lived three blocks from my old apartment where I had the, uh, event and she and I would hang out. And then she told me about this group generation Lyme. They were having a meetup. I guess they, they had started fairly recently. I don't know, maybe the year before, I really didn't want to go. I didn't think meetups or anything like that were going to be for me. I had to kind of bribe myself with a, a iced coffee. It was just like, uh, I don't want to do that. And then um, I went, it was nice. And um, they were talking about something like, if you have ideas for the future or something. And I said, I, I did have ideas. I met with one of them and then I was invited to be on the board. And so starting that January, I was, it was so nice that it was so unexpected. And it, I went very quickly from like, I don't know, to, <laughs> to being deeply involved <laughs> on, on a very, on a four person team. And, um, and from there, I, cause I work really in the background at GenLime. I don't, I'm kind of a sponge, I think with people. And so I, and because I have a lot, I don't have like no free time. <laughs> I don't host so much, but I do the, I do background stuff and like organizational stuff. Um, but that work kind of led to a position at Project Lime, which I was very grateful for. So I do a lot of um, marketing and communications and like a lot of creative work, which I really enjoy doing, which is kind of a a bit of a marriage of all of the work that I, things that I actually was doing before. Cause a lot of my side gigs uh, bef- while I was singing and, and getting progressively sicker. So I was kind of taking myself out. It wasn't just full singing until the end. It was like, I'd, you know, especially if I was traveling, I, I would find remote work. And a lot of that work involved, involved creative consulting and project managing and uh, and marketing and communications and stuff like that so it actually kind of built a bit of experience and and um and i'd always wanted to do stuff that helped other people for there was a year when um and this is the longer version but there was uh, a year and it was the year i got diagnosed but i started an organization to facilitate civic engagement in communities and I just designed it to be um, to be local with a model that communities could use everywhere, because I would talk to people out and my friends, and I would talk to people in bars and stuff like that. And every, it would, I'd learned that everybody had opinions and everybody cared about what goes on in their in their communities and like government and their country and stuff. But 
a lot of people just really didn't know what to do and felt kind of powerless. And so I sort of came up with this plan and built this team and um, devised this, this way without telling people what to do to help people figure out what they wanted to do and connect them with a path to, to doing it and like facilitate those kinds of conversations. So I always wanted to do something like that. I, I dropped it the, that year also, it was just like a year long thing. I put the model out there, I put it on the internet. We, we had meetings, it was great. And, and then I obviously couldn't do, I had to drop that same time I dropped everything else. But um, so going into this nonprofit space was, was not as um, out of left field as it might seem basically. And then the doctor that I work for in her practice, she's helped me tremendously and has been a doctor who, who listens and has learned a lot about Lyme disease. She's not a Lyme doctor, but it's so important to have people who do listen and learn about conditions like ours. And, um, and I, I really like, uh, and, and I love learning. So it's, um, I really enjoy that work because I really like, she does regenerative medicine, which is a really cool field. And so I, I like getting to learn about that. So isn't it interesting how Lyme disease took the little girl who had all kinds of gifts and talents in the creative arts arena, was an artist as a young child, was doodling while she was in school and getting herself in trouble, ultimately became a singer and worked as a professional singer until Lyme brought her back full circle to now merge together these talents that she wanted to develop both having this aptitude from social studies and political science, and she had this artistic talent, and now it's being presented in the Lyme disease arena where you've become the superhero who's using all those talents to help all the other people who are suffering from Lyme disease. Isn't that an interesting merger that has been created by your Lyme disease journey? That's a very nice way of putting it. <laughs> So let's, let's take one more opportunity to talk about your recent tick bite experience, but it's not going to be you who's been bitten by a tick. Let's, let's, um, let's um, step back and imagine now that you're at home with your parents, your mom comes into the room right after the podcast and she has a tick biting her on her leg. What would you recommend that she do as somebody who does not have chronic Lyme disease so that she would not have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? I mean, which of the pieces that you put together to regain your health and you're using again to now um, remit this uh, Lyme disease that you're dealing with, would you offer to your mom? Well, if she found the tick, I would definitely suggest a proper removal process with the long tweezers and sending it to the lab to find out what it's infected with. And then immediately before, before getting those results and before getting any blood tests, she should get a blood test, but simultaneously go to the doctor and request antibiotics. Make sure to get antibiotics and probably a combination of antibiotics to go to a Lyme literate doctor and to be willing to stay on them for a long time and to also probably start an herbal protocol that's safe, a lot that might work with the other medications that she's on and confer with the test results when they come. 
Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with our guest, Jennifer Hoffman. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Jennifer Hoffman, please visit her Instagram page at Jennifer Lynn, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-L-Y-Y-N-N. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Thick Boot Camp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Thick Boot Camp has created a Thick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Boot Camp podcast. And finally, we thank your community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.